President Walford, members of the faculty, distinguished alumni and guests, and fellow students, it is with deep gratitude and a sense of great unworthiness that I come to this lectureship. I ask you all to pray for me. My normal speaking style is extemporaneous, but I must read these lectures because they will be published. As you can imagine, this fact presented a problem in planning that I have decided to solve by determining to make no attempt to be abstract, profound, clever, or even inspirational. <laughs> Too many lectures, in my opinion, fail by pursuing these ends anyway. Instead, the situation happily has forced me to do one thing. I have concluded that I must try to be as concrete, informative, and practical as I know how. This controlling design will be apparent throughout, but perhaps more discernible in the later lectures. There is at the outset a certain amount of foundational work that must be done in order to support the more concrete structures that I hope to build. So let's break the ground and pour the footing. First, I shall begin by stating categorically that as a faithful Christian minister, you must use the scriptures in counseling. I do not think that I need to labor this point here at Dallas Seminary. I am sure that the reason why I was invited to deliver these lectures in the first place was because of our common conviction about this vital imperative. Therefore, since I think that I can safely assume that we are in basic agreement about this, since I have argued the issue elsewhere in print, and since I am certain that your interest lies more in questions growing out of problems connected with the ways and means of using the scriptures in counseling, I shall quickly move beyond this point. But before I do, perhaps a word or two would be in order. It may be necessary, for instance, to point out to some of you that you must have conviction, courage, and a steady determination to use the scriptures in counseling. You may think that it will be easy to graduate from this school, take up your work in a conservative pastorate, and simply as part of your effort there, begin to do biblical counseling. Please believe me, when I say that it will not be that simple in most cases. The pressures exerted against a ministry of biblical counseling are great, as you will discover all too soon. For one thing, when you begin to counsel biblically, some counselees will rebel. They will protest that you are being unduly hard on them, will demand an easier way out. After all, scriptural counsel is often hard. Sin creates no easy problems. They are all so difficult that it took nothing less than the death of Christ to meet them. Untangling men from the webs of sin can be a quite painful process. The hard but needed directions that you will give to others from God's word about repentance, confession of sin, reconciliation with one's brother, and so on, will not sit right with those who want to remove the miseries caused by sin without dealing with the sin itself. Secondly, because sinners, and never forget that Christians are sinners too, 
because sinners always want to do things the easy way, they often will insist on bypassing the hard work of determining from the scriptures what God's solutions to their problems may be. Instead, they will run to faith healers, exorcists, those who will claim to receive who claim to receive extra biblical guidance or revelation for quick answers. They will plead experience as the interpreter of the scriptures or will try to use the Bible as a talisman from which to extract magical answers. For instance, more than once parents will appear for counseling, dragging their rebellious teenager whom they have failed to discipline for the past 17 years and say, in effect, okay, do it to him. <laughs> they expect the counselor to put two feathers in his hair, do a short rain dance, wave the Bible over the boy's head seven times, and pronounce him cured. <laughs> Such people are not happy when they learn that they will have to spend from six to eight weeks establishing Christian communication and developing biblical relationships with their son. They wanted a medicine man not a Christian counselor. To resist these tendencies and instead hold out for careful exegesis and application will not always be easy. You will find, too, that even in the midst of the present disillusionment with it, many Americans still worship science and science falsely so-called. How else could B.F. Skinner who pontificates that man is merely an animal and that the world's problems can be solved by scientific retraining commands such a large hearing today. Members of your congregation, elders, deacons, and fellow ministers, not to speak of Christians who are psychiatrists and psychologists, may turn on the pressure and try to dissuade you from any resolute determination to make your counseling wholly scriptural. They may insist that you cannot use the Bible as a textbook for counseling, try to shame you into thinking that seminary has inadequately trained you for the work, tempt you to buy all sorts of shiny psychological wares to use as adjuncts to the Bible, and generally demand that you abandon what they may imply or openly state to be an arrogant, insular, and hopelessly inadequate basis for counseling. They may even warn and threaten as they caricature the biblical method. Think of the harm that you may do by simply, handi simply handing out Bible verses like prescriptions and pills. All these and a dozen more pressures will be exerted upon you to give, give up any idea of a scripturally founded and functioning system of counseling. Combined with personal doubts that may arise during times of discouragement, these pressures can be greater than you now may think. What then can be done to meet and to resist effectively all such pressures? There is but one answer. During periods of pressure, look to the scriptures for their help in doing this too. The counselor's counselor is the Holy Spirit speaking by his word. All of which leads us to an examination of the important question, what does scriptural counseling involve? Your encouragement and insurance will come from an understanding of this matter. The answer to the question is that counseling that is truly scriptural is, first, motivated by the scriptures, 
Second, founded presuppositionally upon the scriptures. Third, structured by the goals and objectives of the scriptures. And fourth, developed systematically in terms of the practices and principles modeled and enjoined in the scriptures. To put it simply, scriptural counseling is counseling that is wholly scriptural. The Christian counselor uses the scriptures as the sole guide for both counselor and counselee. He rejects eclecticism. He refuses to mix man's ideas with God's. Like every faithful preacher of the word, he acknowledges the scriptures to be the only source of divine authority and therefore judges all other matters by the teaching of the scriptures. In short, such counseling takes the scriptures seriously when they say that they are able to make the man of God adequate and equip him for every good work. In the passage from which these words come, Paul piled words and phrases upon one another to convey the idea of complete adequacy. The scriptures not only make the Christian minister adequate for his work, but as Paul put it, entirely equip him for it. Not only do they thoroughly anticipate and show him how to meet all possible pastoral counseling situations, but by doing so they make him adequate, Paul insisted, for every, not just for some, but every good work that his office requires of him. Because the minister par excellence must counsel as part of his life calling, he knows therefore that God's written word will adequately equip him for this phase of ministerial work. While all sorts of other resources may be used, useful illustratively and in other secondary ways, the basic principles for the practice of counseling are all given in the Bible. Counseling that relies upon these principles is scriptural. This leads us to the main matter before us, the use of the scriptures in counseling. The use of the scriptures in counseling means, first of all, that the scriptures are the counselor's textbook for counseling. Like his Lord, who was the wonderful counselor predicted by Isaiah, he will find that all that he needs for the work of counseling is in the Bible. Jesus Christ needed no other text to become the world's only perfect counselor. He was that because he used the scriptures more fully than anyone else, either before or since. His counsel was perfect because it was wholly scriptural in the absolute sense of those words. The minister who engages in scriptural counseling like him believes that because the Holy Spirit inspired the book for that purpose, the Bible must be used in counseling. Arguments that one does not use the Bible as a textbook for architecture or for mechanical drawing beg the question. If God has assigned the task of neuthetic confrontation to ministers as part of their life calling, and he has given the scriptures to them to equip them fully for this life calling, then it follows that the scriptures, while treating other matters as well, adequately furnish all that ministers need to counsel. Remember, the scriptures do not purport to give shipbuilders or architects or electrical engineers detailed information for pursuing their arts. But they do claim 
to equip ministers adequately for theirs. Indeed, where else may one turn to obtain the precise data needed to meet the two major issues in counseling, namely the problem of how to love God and the problem of how to love one's neighbor? After all, we spend little time discussing counseling problems about things. It is a relationship with God and with other persons in relationship with it is in relationships with God and with other persons that counseling problems develop. The scriptures in focusing upon these two questions provide all things pertaining to and necessary for life and godliness. With Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Christian counselor affirms, quote, every conceivable view of life and of men is invariably dealt with somewhere or other in the scriptures, end quote. When it comes to counseling, then, eclecticism is not an option. The issue resolves itself quite simply into this. If a principle is new to or different from those that are advocated in the scriptures, it is wrong. If it is not, it is unnecessary. It is at this point that so many of the self-styled professionals balk. They want the Bible in part, but not solely as the basis for their counseling. Yet, just because of the fundamental nature of the question, it is right here that one makes the most vital decision about counseling. It is here that he decides whether his counseling will be wholly scriptural and therefore Christian, or whether it will be something else. As his textbook for counseling, secondly, the scriptures tell the counselor all that he needs to know about God, man, the world, and the relationships between these. They speak of man's nature as a creature who bears God's image and likeness. His basic problem, sin, and God's solution in Christ. They tell him what counseling should be, provide the content that is, the counsel for it, detail the qualifications required of those who do it, and govern and regulate the methodology that may be used in it. What more is needed? Apart from the Bible, who else has such information? Next, you must see scriptural counseling alone as adequate to meet man's problems. All right. We've generalized enough, perhaps, this morning. How does all this come out in the wash? What does scriptural counseling mean in concrete contexts? Let us conclude our lecture with some examples of scriptural counseling that will serve to point up more vividly what I have been trying to say. Start with the most difficult counseling problem of all, death. To be more specific, let us ask, who best counsels a grief-stricken widow following the death of her husband? Who's adequate for this task? Is the psychiatrist? The clinical psychologist? You know that he isn't, and so does he. Quite seriously, what does he have to offer? On the other hand, are you adequate? Armed with God's scriptural promises, you know 
that you are adequate. You know that among God's children, you can, as Paul put it, comfort one another with God's words. You know that God has said that the scriptural data in 1 Thessalonians 4 will act as an anchor for the believer to keep his grief from drifting into despair and that they will moderate that grief by balancing it with hope so that in the end, through scriptural counsel, the widow is enabled to sorrow in a way different from others who have no hope. And to the surviving one who does not know Christ, in that hour the only word that can make any real difference is the redemptive word of the gospel by which in God's providence the Christian counselor may be used to bring eternal life to her out of the occasion of death. Not fair, I can almost hear someone say. You've stacked the deck in your favor. Everyone knows that death, at least until recently, has been the peculiar province of pastors. Well, I don't think that it is at all unfair to begin with life's most difficult counseling problem since it so clearly points up the contrast between psychiatric inadequacy and scriptural provision, and since it so pointedly shows who it is that really is engaged in depth counseling and who, on the other hand, has but thin soup to offer, I am nevertheless quite willing to leave the matter right here and take up a different one. What about a marriage that has been strained to its breaking point? Two people, let us say two Christians, fighting and arguing sit before a non-Christian counselor. As they spit out acrimonious words of bitterness and discouragement and declare that there is nothing left to their marriage that they loathe rather than love one another, what does the unbelieving counselor have to offer? In this day of unparalleled marital failure, on what thin thread can he hang hope? From what source can he promise change? By what authority can he insist upon reconciliation? Indeed, does he even believe reconciliation to be possible or desirable? Is he adequate? The scriptural counselor, in contrast, is able to meet the situation adequately. He says, in effect, with the full authority of God, since the information that you have given me indicates that you have no scriptural warrant for dissolving this marriage, there is but one course open to you, reconciliation followed by the building of an entirely new relationship that is pleasing to God. In contrast to the non-Christian, because he does not speak out of his own authority, the scriptural counselor speaks with confidence, knowing the goal and how to reach it. Happily, he continues, the scriptures contain all of the information that you need to make these changes a reality. What is more, the Holy Spirit who provided these instructions in scripture promises also to give the strength to follow them to all Christians who sincerely wish to do so and who step out in obedience by faith. After detailing some of the many hopeful biblical specifics about such change, I shall not do so here. 
He can confidently encourage and persuade them. If you mean business with God, even though your marriage presently is in a desperate condition, within a few weeks you can have instead a marriage that sings. Indeed, there is no reason why the first steps toward God's dramatic change could not be taken this week, beginning today. What do you say? Now, I ask you, who is adequate for such things? The answer? Christian counselors who use the scriptures authoritatively to give hope through God's promises and concrete instruction and no one else. It is precisely because the will of God is made known authoritatively in these divinely inspired writings that the Christian may counsel with confidence. He does not need to guess about homosexuality or drunkenness, for instance, nor does he need to wait for the latest changeable scientific pronouncements to discover whether these human deviations stem from sickness or from learned behavior or whatever. God has spoken and clearly declared both to be sins. Therein lies hope. God has not promised to cure every illness. He has said nothing about changing genetic structures. But in Christ, he has provided freedom from every sin. Together with a long string of similar difficulties, God has shown that those who trust Christ not only can be forgiven and cleansed, but also can fully overcome both of these sins. He says to converted Corinthians, using the past tense note, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Absolute authority, Christ's commandments and precise pronouncements are all but universally decried as restrictive and evil by those who eject the scriptures from counseling. They make no distinction, you see between authority and authoritarianism. Unwittingly, thereby, they jettison the basis for all hope, both for themselves and for their counselees. When God authoritatively directs his children to forsake any sin or to follow any path of righteousness, the Christian may take hope. For apart from authoritative directions, all is in flux. Nothing is certain. There is no foundation for hope, although his first reaction may be dismay when he recognizes how far his present life patterns have veered from God's way. Upon repentance and further reflection, the counselee should realize that whenever the Heavenly Father requires anything of his children, he always provides instruction and power to meet those requirements. Every directive of God no matter how far short of it that he may come at the moment, serves then to provide a solid foundation for the Christian's hope. Both counselor and counselee, therefore, may take heart in scriptural counseling for the very reason that it is authoritative. Still, you protest, marriage counseling, like counseling the grief-stricken, it's not quite the same thing as dealing with those who are depressed or those who exhibit bizarre behavior. What of the use of the scriptures in those cases? Fair enough. Let us consider another example. Fred's behavior over a period of several years at times became so bizarre 
But he was jailed, sent to two mental institutions, received a series of shock treatments, was placed on heavy medications, was subjected to intensive psychotherapy and various psychiatric treatments, all to no avail. When he came for scriptural counseling, it was as a last resort. But after six sessions, his problem was solved. He has been leading a successful life as a productive Christian for well over two years. What made the difference? Biblical convictions. Since no evidence of organic damage or malfunction had been discovered during extensive medical tests, the Christian counselor rightly assumed that the roots of the problem were likely to be embedded in the soil of sin. With that conviction, he set out to work. His goal was not to treat symptoms, as had been done previously by those who administered shock treatments and by those who prescribed medication. Nor was he intent upon discovering who had maltreated Fred in the past, as were others who had spent long hours dredging up all manner of parental and societal abuses in hopes of freeing the poor victim of a tyrannical superego. Nor did the biblical counselor focus upon feelings, as a third group of counselors had when they spent months attempting by reflecting his emotional responses to draw solutions out of his own storehouse of resources. What did he do? Simply this. He set out in search of the sin or sins that he supposed might be at the bottom of the difficulty. A few weeks later, through proper questioning, he discovered that Fred had been sinning against his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit by failing to get adequate sleep. Every effect of LSD or other hallucinogenic drugs may be caused by significant sleep loss, an important fact for seminary students and faculty to remember, to remember during exam periods, incidentally. Fred's bizarre behavior always followed periods of sleep loss. Fred was convicted of his sin against God and following, forgi uh, following forgiveness, was placed on a carefully monitored sleep regimen. His daily schedule was revised according to biblical life priorities, and the problem was erased. How did the counselor know to do this? Well, he went in search of the sin because he believed the Bible. The Bible knows only two categories of causes for bizarre behavior. One, organic causes. Two, non-organic causes. Don't forget the psychiatrists say there's another. Organic factors may be hereditary or later acquired through accident, toxic destruction of brain cells, etc. Some, but not all, organic problems may be due to the sin of the individual. For example, drug abuse may impair normal bodily functioning. But on the other hand, all non-organic problems are represented in the scriptures as stemming from the counselee's sin. There is no third neutral category or subcategory that allows for non-organic difficulties for which the counselee may not be held personally responsible. On the basis of these biblical presuppositions, the Christian counselor began his search. It is important to note that the Freudians and Rogerians who treated Freud, uh, Fred <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> also did so on the basis of their presuppositions. The former presupposed that Fred's problems stemmed from past malsocialization, the latter from failure to actualize his full potential. If Fred had been treated by a Skinnerian behaviorist, he too would have dealt with him on the basis of his conviction that man is only an animal, 
and that a new set of environmental contingencies or learning conditions must be substituted for the previous ones which had brought about the undesirable behavior. Every counselor then comes into counseling with presuppositions. These presuppositions pertain to all of the fundamental questions of life, its purpose or lack of it, its problems, their solutions, the nature of man, the relationships which he sustains to others and to his world. Most important, every one of those presuppositions, wittingly or unwittingly, either includes or excludes God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If then, counseling begins with such presuppositions, how vital to begin with the right ones? These are found only in the scriptures. Each counselor finds what he is searching for. The Freudian looks for others who did it to him. And since parents, educators, and even preachers and Sunday school teachers are sinners, he has little trouble finding many people who have wronged the counselee. The Rogerian looks for insights from within the counselee that may be drawn out from a fully prepackaged supply of potential resources upon which the counselee has failed to rely. Since no sinful counselee ever lives up to his full potential, Rogerians may elicit some such insights. The Skinnerian looks for environmental changes that must be made in order to reshape behavior. He will find much in the environment that needs to be altered. But notice, not one of them looks for sin. Indeed, if he discovers it by accident, he renames it. <laughs> Instead, the sin becomes an emotional problem, or immaturity, or insecurity, or a neurosis, or mental illness, or something else that better fits the system built upon his unbiblical presuppositions. Reinterpreting sin however, redirects one from real solutions involving regeneration, forgiveness, sanctification, and so on, to some lesser inadequate remedy that never can satisfy the radical needs of condemned and corrupted man that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to meet. Only scriptural counseling grounded upon scriptural presuppositions can do that. Because of these facts, you must... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. When you counsel, it should be with hope, then, with expectation, that since it is scriptural, your efforts will not be in vain. If your counseling labors are done in the Lord, that is, in obedience to his word and in reliance upon his power, then they will issue in the Lord's results, in the Lord's time, and in the Lord's way. No other counselor has such assurance. At best, he knows that he has opted for some system or eclectic amalgam from various systems over against others. For a number of reasons, this proves most dissatisfying. If he is a Freudian, he knows that more than half of the, half of the psychiatric world itself has abandoned his position and that vigorous attacks built upon strong arguments have been mounted against his views. Only the most arrogant psychologist, psychiatrist today could be wholly sold on psychoanalysis if he has stood in full face of the prevailing winds. <clears throat> Moreover, look at the plethora of psychoanalytic cults, offshoots, and isms from which he must choose. Which sort of psychoanalysis will you have? Classical Freudianism, neo-Freudianism, dynamic Freudianism, or what? Each of these differs from the next, not as conservative churches or denominations who agree on the fundamentals, but as widely as Orthodox Presbyterians in the Church of Rome. When one begins to branch out beyond the avowedly psychoanalytic schools to the existentialist, the Rogerians, the behaviors, the transactional analysts, the many sorts of group therapists, 
therapists, uh, crisis interventionists, the rational therapists, the reality therapists, the radical therapists, the primal screamers and the followers of Lang and so on and on and on, he begins to see the confusion that reigns. <laughs> and unlike the Christian counselor, the rest have no standard, no way to know and no way to be sure who is right. What a difference it makes to have the authoritative word of God. The unbelieving counselor, seated in his plush, expensive furniture, surrounded by hundreds of books on psychology and psychiatry, with every word may seem to exude an outward confidence and certainty that one might have thought originated on Mount Olympus. <laughs> yet, yet unless he is incredibly naive, unless the volumes on his shelves are there for impression alone, he knows that every statement, every judgment, every decision that he makes in counseling is challenged and countered by scores of authors from an equal number of viewpoints. Psychiatric jargon or prestige, which may be heavily plastered over inner insecurities, ought never to be equated with psychiatric knowledge or wisdom. No, the truth of the matter is that the Christian counselor, who determines by the grace of God to know and use the scriptures in his counseling, is the only one who can ever have a solid basis for what he says and does. While there may be any number of issues about which he has not yet come to a fully biblical understanding, nevertheless, because he has and he believes the scriptures on all of the fundamental questions of life, he not only knows but is fully assured of the truth and of the will of God. <clears throat> Let no one, therefore, tell you that the scriptural counselor is inadequate, that he must take a back seat while learning from his pagan counterpart. The opposite is true. And it is about time that Christian counselors began to make the fact known. In closing, I cannot help but think of the psalmist when he wrote, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. To those of you who believe this, let your prayer together with him be, sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be put to shame because of my hope.